coming up on today's podcast. Don't wait for others. Be that person. Be that lone voice. Because you'll find typically that people will follow you. What does it take to live with trauma that impacts you on such a deep level that you can never go back to life as it was before or live your life as it might have been? What if the way your story is retold by others is not telling the whole truth? And how do you question those in authority? I'm Jane Gunn, the Barefoot Mediator, and this is a show where we have some of those deep conversations about issues and choices that are impacting society and our lives right now. In today's episode, I am speaking with Richard McCann, a professional speaker and author, whose story about the murder of his mother, Wilma, is currently being portrayed in the ITV series, The Long Shadow. We talk about the courage it takes to face your own reality, as well as the need to question everything in order to survive. Welcome, Richard. Uh, good afternoon, Jane. Nice to see you. So I, I know I know uh, our listeners can't see you, but you, Richard, are known as the snappiest dresser in terms of professional speakers. And I can see you wearing a, a marvellous tank top on screen. Which is nice and orange, which your listeners won't be able to see. And uh, the, the reason it's <laughs> orange is because I, I, I have ginger hair. or I used to have ginger uh-huh. as a child and I hated it. But now I am embracing it. That's if you're on to my website, it's all orange branding. We've got an orange wall in the office. So that's why it's an orange top. But anyway, thank you for that compliment. And I, I love the idea that you've embraced something that could have been awkward or, or difficult or that you might have rejected, but you just go, right, I'm embracing that. So I think that will be part of our theme for today as well. Oh, very as good. <laughs> How are you embracing? So, Richard, tell us, you and I know each other as, as speakers through the Professional Speaking Association, and that's one of the things you do but but just tell us about your work and and how you come to that passion for it which which is partly linked to your life story isn't it yes so i mean i'm I'm predominantly the thing i do most often is i'm a i suppose a motivational speaker sometimes yeah. i'm not built as a motivational speaker if i'm speaking to social workers and such like but i share my lived experience my you know quite traumatic in the early stages of our life but i i share that journey and i have been doing now for 18 years across the globe and then I, a couple of different hats that I wear I, I do workshops on growth mindset and resilience I do presentation skills and storytelling so I'm, I'm, I'm kept quite busy yes. but I was gonna say the reason that I'm doing all this now and I never dreamt of doing any of this because I used to have a fear of speaking was because in 2004 I found the courage to uh, not be ashamed of my story any longer and I wrote about it and that was the start of a journey that's led me to where I am today yeah and your story, just briefly in a nutshell, because I know it's a long story, but for listeners who don't know you or don't know your story, just a, a just a brief. Yeah, and, and 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 some of your listeners may have watched uh, the ones in the UK at least, or seen some of some of my story dramatised in the ITV very powerful drama, The Long Shadow, yeah. which I, I found absolutely incredible and very moving and and very sensitively done. So, for, for those of you that haven't seen that drama, when I was a five year old boy, my mum. Wilma McCann went out drinking and we never saw her again because she met Peter Sutcliffe that night, the serial killer who went on to murder 13 women. My mum was the first of 13. And I say first of 13 that we know about because we suspect that there might have been more. That is, I would say that's the thing I'm known for. It's not. I think what I'm known for is how I was able to bounce back and recover from that and, you know, finally find a, a place in the world where I can just be like everybody else, I suppose, and, and laugh and smile and joke like everybody else. No, 
not only that, Richard, I think it's your when you talk about resilience, it, it is that bounce back ability. It's that, you know, that you must have reached a crossroads at some point in your life where you had a choice to make between the life you could live if you continue down the path you were maybe on at that stage and and what took you to a vision of something better different yeah um I, I don't think it's as simple as there was a turning point because mm. if i think about my in my resilience workshop my bounce back graph which is an exercise that i do and i get people to chart the ups and downs of their life if you're in above the line you're in the green below the line you're in the red you're going through some trauma and when i show my own bounce back graph. It's ups and downs, ups and downs, and we all go through life like that, by the way. But there's been so many ups and so many downs in my life that it wasn't as easy as just saying, what was the turning point? And of course, writing my book was a turning point Yeah, because I was liberated from, from the, the shame, I suppose. But if I think back about my whole life, not just the setbacks and the tragedies, but just life in general, even as young as a, I don't know, eight, nine-year-old boy, one thing that I've always done is try to improve my life my situation my lot in the world so we had no money in the house and as soon as I could I was delivering newspapers I was delivering milk I was working whilst I was at school at the local taxi rank doing the radio operator so I've always been um, not ambitious as in I want to be a doctor or anything I, I, I just I'm ambitious as in I want to improve my situation and then when I got into the workplace although I had no qualifications I was always keen to do my best in whatever role I got and although it might have been stacking boxes in a warehouse I wanted to be the best at that. And as, as much as I'm not academic, what I always believe is if you, if, you, if you put some effort in and, you know, do the best, be the best version of you that you can be, it's sure it's in my interest. So, so there's been, uh, I guess, a pattern throughout my life, just trying to improve, improve my situation. And, but it's not been as easy as that. But I think if I look at each role and I built, I think each role I've got, a little bit better at it or I've got a bit more money and I eventually was able to buy my house and you could say that might have been a turning point but then soon after that was back in the red because I got involved in recreational drugs so uh, I th there's been a number of different turning points one of them was writing the book but the second one was becoming a father becoming a parent of my own and that responsibility of ensuring that they that they find a good place for themselves in the world that they see you know, to be the best version of them that they can be, that they don't have the kind of childhood that I had when I was a child. So it's, it, there's been a number of turning points uh, along the way. Yeah, that, that's huge, isn't it? Having children and then, and then and now my daughters have got daughters of their own. So they say to me, oh, I see. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they've got, they've got what this, uh, the challenges of being a parent are all about, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. yeah, it actually reminds me of some of the things that might get into. When I was a child, you think you know the world, you think you know what it's like, you think that your parents know everything, and and, and then when you become a parent, as we both have done, then you realise, oh, okay, as you just described with your daughter, uh, th then you tend to get it, and you realise how difficult it was for them. And then, you know, in fact, when I discovered that, I was a bit more forgiving of some of the things that my father did to us because uh, he's quite a violent man but it, 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 even despite that I, I still forgave him and um yeah being a parent so I'm not I'm yet to be a, a grandparent however I have been saying to my children just you wait until you get a bit older you'll realize how difficult this this all is but I do hope that my children don't I mean this is important you know I want my children to and I, I sometimes speak as a motivational speaker in schools and one of the things that I talk about is I want children 
actually, I want everybody, I want, I want people to question things. I was at a private school recently and they, they're in year 11, so just about to leave school, or some of them could have left school after the exams. And the principal stood up and he, and he, and he that was a 10-minute talk. That was the message he said, I want you to question everything because some colleges are going to tempt you saying that they achieve greater results than us, so you won't stay with us. He said, I want you to question those figures, question those statistics, because some of those figures, they are manipulated, to, I guess, to paint a certain picture. And I, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. We should question everything. And there's one thing that I've been doing for the last few years with my children is getting them to question not just the things that they say or think are possible for them, that's the motivational message, but just in society, question what we are told, question what you think is possible for you, question authority, which we might get into, I've, I've done uh, in, in, in recent years uh, with some success, but I just wish I'd have the courage to question them a bit sooner. I think that's something I've always felt that I wanted to do, and not in an aggressive way, but just I've always been very curious. So I've wanted to know, you know, why? Why something like that? Why, you know, why why do we see the world as we see the world? Why do certain authority figures see something? Your example there, I guess, of the of the head of the college, you know, and saying another college might tempt you because they've got better numbers. And then one of the questions I often ask groups I'm working with or when I'm working with a board is, what are your criteria for making the decision? So is it just the numbers or are there other factors? You know, let's let's work through what all the different factors on which you might make your decision are. And that must be the same for you, Richard. You know, the things that take you above the line or below the line, you know, and there are different factors that, as well as mindset and certain things that help you to bounce back, that help you to recover and help you to make decisions, the right decisions in times, difficult times. Yeah, uh, one of the things that I've come across in my research over the years is a, a notion, or it's called your explanatory style. This is Seligman's work, your explanatory style. We create the, we create the world, it goes back to what I said as me as a child, and that we think our parents are doing certain things and they should know better, etc. That's because I'm telling myself, or I'm painting a certain picture about how the world is. Seligman calls it your explanatory style, and it's that explanatory style or thoughts around certain events or situations that helped me when mum died. Because after she did die, I know this is not a motivational message, but and we're not sure where this conversation is going to go. However, when mum died, I can remember, so I was six, because I turned six a week later, I remember telling myself that mum had been taken um, to stop her suffering, because she was going through all sorts of problems, violence at the hand of mum's boyfriend, because dad left, psychiatric wards, electric shock treatment. So I told myself that, Mum had been taken to give us a better life with my dad and to stop her suffering. So that explanatory style has, has, has served me really well. And however, that explanatory style sometimes is wrong. Uh, and what I mean by that, I remember when J. MacDonald, the fifth person to die at the hands of Peter Sutcliffe, when she died, what I thought, I thought, because she babysat for us, I thought that he was actually watching the house for months. He's come and killed my mum, and then he's come back two years later and killed the babysitter. That actually wasn't accurate. It was, well, it's completely inaccurate. So sometimes what we think is true is not. It goes back to what I sometimes share in schools, and that we have to question sometimes what we say uh, is going on both internally and externally. And, and uh, it wasn't actually featured on the, the long shadow I wish it had because I was really proud of doing this. But one of the things that I questioned externally was some of the language that was used, which were detailed 
in the long shadow, the language from the police authority talking about the women, saying that mum and others deserved what happened to them, that they brought it on themselves. Jay MacDonald was apparently, according to the police, the first innocent victim. What? How dare they say that? So, you know, all my life I've, and I've, I've told you I've been ashamed of the story, ashamed of mum, ashamed of being associated with him. And part of that was because of the language that was used. So sometimes we have to just be careful, not be careful, they have to be careful, that is authority, about the language, the narrative, what is being said about certain situations, because sometimes they get it wrong. Uh, anyways, the, the point I'm getting at is in 2010, sorry, sorry 2020, when Peter Sutcliffe died, I was on national TV and I, I finally seized my moment to question that language that was used. Uh, and by the way, things that, I know that things have improved, but there's still lots of misogyny going on out there. We have to think about the Sarah Everard case with the Metropolitan Police. Um, and incidentally, Sarah Everard, she followed him. He, he said he was a police officer and got her into his car and she she didn't question that. You know, So we do need to just... Uh, the, uh, what I'm saying is we need to question things that go on around us, question authority. Just because they're an authority figure does not mean to say they're getting right. We are human beings, and sometimes we get it wrong. And sometimes we, we do things because those above us have said, do it this way, and we haven't found the courage to, to call them out or just at least question that. Anyway, we got the apology from West Yorkshire Police, um, maybe a little bit later than we should have got it, but we got it, and they, they, they did apologise for the language that was used, which I was grateful for. However, the truth is, I'd wrote to West Yorkshire Police nine months earlier, questioning the language, inviting them. You mentioned there about doing things in a subtle way. I wasn't aggressive. It was, in fact, I asked, uh, it was a barrister that helped him write out this beautiful letter requesting this public apology. The reality is they never responded to my letter in nine months. So as much as on TV or in the media, the it was seen to be, oh, the police are doing the right thing. They've apologised. The fact is, I'm talking about integrity here, they did not apologise until I was on national TV. They they were, I guess they wanted to be seen to be doing the right thing. Don't be seen to be doing the right thing because it's because you want to be seen to be doing the right thing. Do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry to get my soapbox there, but... Um, no, it's a good soapbox, Richard. I agree with that soapbox. And I think we do have to do the right thing, even if we stand alone because sometimes we have to stand alone to do the right thing. And maybe other people will join us. I I, I love that. Uh, there's a YouTube video. I don't know if you know what you're going to say, the dancer. The dance of leadership, where, you know, one guy's at a festival and he's doing a crazy dance and everybody looks and thinks he's crazy. He's mad. He's all on his own, you know. And then one other person joins him. Yeah. And actually, it's the follower that's the most important person, because once you've got a follower, once somebody says, yeah, he's got a point or hang on, I could dance like that or I could stand up and question as well. And then uh, other people are happy to stand up. So sometimes you do have to stand alone and stand out and stand up for other people to have the courage to do it. It takes courage. It takes real courage. Yeah. And it reminds me when, when I'm doing my motivational talks. And I talk about focusing on the positive. And I ask this, and it happens every time, no matter if it's Barclays or it's army officers, I ask, do we have any positive people here? And I ask for a show of hands. Nobody puts their hands up. And then maybe five, six seconds later, somebody puts their hand up, then somebody else puts their hand up. And then I say, look what just happened. It happens everywhere. Nobody wants to be the first person. Yeah. And, I say, but, and I'll talk to that first person, what's your name, etc. And I say, don't wait for others. Yeah. Be that person, be that lone voice, because 
you'll find typically that people will follow you. And, I, and just going back to the challenging language and things, uh, I'm still on my soapbox about this, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to use the moniker that Mum's Killer was known as, but it, it, it was Yorkshire, and the second word begins with R and sounds like slipper. If you watch <laughs> the ITV drama, you know the word I'm talking about. I really dislike that word, and I've been challenging the media for years, stop using that. We know his name is Peter Sutcliffe. And just this morning, I got the latest edition of Best Magazine. And I said, they want to interview me because of the TV drama. I said, I'll do it, but you cannot use his moniker. And you know what? They didn't. We got it this morning. And on that, it's on, it's on the front page. Uh, Peter Sutcliffe, that's his name. And, and I'm going to keep going on about it. And I think I'm going to be on the BBC next week when that drama comes to an end. I'm going to be saying the same thing again. And, you know... Even if everybody's saying, no, we're going to ignore you, like the Times did quite recently. I said, please don't use that that name in the headline. And, and they did. They ignored me. So I'm just going to, I'm going to keep pushing on that one because I think it's really important. The other thing when we were just chatting before we came on air, uh, Richard, was about kind of false flags or red herrings or something, you know, with the ter- with the with the with the Yorkshire accent as well as the name. Tell us about that. Oh, yes, there was a there was a hoaxer. Yeah. If you've not seen the drama, there was a hoaxer. Uh, it turns out his name was John Humble, but it was from the Northeast. So he sent a cassette tape all those years ago. Well, it actually started with letters and then it was a cassette tape pretending to be the killer. And I, I, can, I can remember hearing that cassette tape myself. And, and at the time I heard it, remember, I'm listening to Mum's Killer because that's what the police said. Uh, you're no nearer to catching me now than you were four years ago when I started. I thought four years ago when you started, you're talking about the night you killed my mum. And so, but at the time, some people, but not everybody, challenged. In fact, it was in the drama, the ITV drama, but they challenged whether that might or may not be the killer because they were ruling out anybody that didn't have a Geordie accent. Well, Peter Sutcliffe did not have a Geordie accent. It's because it was, a, as you say, it was a false flag. It was it was just somebody winding up the police. Three women cost, um, it cost the lives of three women because he was ruled out after cassette recording was released. Uh, when, had it not been released, they may have got listened to. There's an officer who's sadly no longer with us, but I did meet him, Andy Lapp too. He went to the, the, the senior officers with a file with Peter Sutcliffe's name and said, well, I believe this man wants looking at, and because he didn't have that Geordie accent, they threw it away. And... I, I mean, Andrew Latu challenged them. Unfortunately, he wasn't listened to. And um, but there's, sort of, like, there's lessons there for us all. Even if well, one, if you think it's if you think something's right or wrong, you've got to speak up, even if you're the only person. That even if those in authority disagree with you, sometimes you've got to keep pushing. Like I'm going to keep pushing for the media to stop using monikers, not just my mum's killer's moniker, but all of them, because it creates this false reality. So if you think about Mum's Killer and that name that it was given, it creates this, it conjures up this image of a monster. Actually, Peter Sutcliffe, although he did some monstrous things, on the face of it, to look at him with his softly spoken Yorkshire accent, he didn't look like a monster. So we need to stop using those monikers. And I'll, well, I'll, I'll keep, every time uh, one of the media outlets tweets a story and uses that moniker to grab their headlines, I, I tweet back and say, please stop using that. And I'll keep doing that until the day that I die. And eventually one day we might have them listen. It's very interesting, though. I think the power of the media and the power of language. And then again, what I'm listening to you is the power of of, of listening, actually. But, you know, how much we get drawn in by 
language that's used by others or we get drawn into a, a story or a vision of what reality is and you know perhaps we need to listen more carefully and question more carefully ourselves is that the right story is that the right vision it's it's challenging isn't it it, it is but you know what if you just think back over the years how, how many things have we seen on the media and then years later it turns out actually that was inaccurate and it, do you know what's happened to me over the last few years, particularly over the last three years or so? Everything that I see on the television, everything I see on the screen, right, I question it. E even though some things that we see on the screen, it's obvious that this has taken place, whatever that might be. But I still question, well, how has that happened? Who's pulling the strings here? What is at play? And honestly, um, I know we spoke about this before we came online, but I made a podcast, actually it was a, vi a video, a number of years ago, 2007, mm. 16 years ago. Uh, I forget the name of the man, he's so long ago, but um, the website's called Soul Biographies. There's a video on there, nine minutes in length, and it's called, it's me being interviewed for two hours, they narrowed it down to nine minutes, and it's called Glimpse of Reality. And I was talking actually about the synchronistic things that happen in the world that lead me to believe that there's more to this world that we can fully explain. But within that interview, what I was talking about was as a young child, after mum died I'd I'm not sure if, if it was a coping mechanism or was it just to comfort me but I would lay in bed after a beating from my father and I'm, my internal dialogue and I never shared it with anybody not even my my sister Sonia was very close to was Richard what's going on around you is not real it's like you're taking part in a movie mm -hmm. and all these things happening including the the, the killer of my mum it's not real it's like you're in a big film and one day you're going to, it'll all, all will be revealed and all the things that you think have happened are not as they think they are, as you think they are. And that actually comforted me. So yes, it was a coping mechanism on, on reflection because I was trying to not mitigate, but soften the pain that I felt after mum died by thinking, well, she didn't die the way that I thought she did. So it, actually, it's okay. I will see her again. Actually, I won't get into my spiritual beliefs, but I do believe I'll see my mum again. Uh, but my point is, as a young child, I had this thought process that, everything's staged shall we say and I'm in my 50s now I think that that young child wasn't far off the truth because lots of things are staged if you think about oh, I forgot his name because it's so long ago but uh, Tony Blair talked about the 20 minutes was it Afghanistan or was it Iraq we were 20 do you remember the story but basically we were under threat and we were 20 minutes away from being attacked or, yeah. or something similar yeah it was a mass destruction and yeah, yeah, yeah. it wasn't true. Yes, it was not true. So, but did anybody question? Actually, some people did question it. One of the scientists. Interesting. Questioned. Yeah, yeah. Well, we look back and we look back at things that um, are presented to us, and and you know maybe people genuinely believe in those things at that time, but that doesn't mean that later we shouldn't say, "What lessons did we learn from that?" Because it wasn't, it wasn't actually Accurate. as we thought it was, and no. so. We've all got to be able to learn lessons. I mean, that's kind of what my job is, helping people learn lessons from coming out of challenging and conflict situations. You don't just sort of draw a line in the sand. You, you learn. You say, what did, what did I learn? What did I believe then that it's turned out not to be true? One of the things um, I work with clients, I expect you do too, Richard, is facing the brutal truth. You know, what is actually, what what are the brutal facts that you must face about your business, about your life, because unless you've faced those things in the right way, you can't 
you can't you can't make the right choices, can you? Yeah, I'm not sure I, in the work that I do, get into the kind of discussions that you might have things in the boardroom, etc. I'm, I'm typically speaking to a few hundred people uh, about mindset and so on. So I don't get into those kind of conversations. The thing that, that the closest I get to that is I might be doing, I've got one coming up actually in Southampton, as an organisation, it's two days presentation skills, but one of the things, uh, it's the sales team, one of the things we're going to be talking about is having those difficult, difficult conversations with their current clients Maybe they've been let down. How do you address that? And as far as I'm concerned, it, it's just got to come from the heart. This is the facts. This is what will happen. Here's how we're going to put it right. Let's move forward where we're both winners here. So that's the, the I guess, the closest I get to having conversations like that. Uh, or guy, In fact, you might even have some opinion on that and whether that's good advice to be giving. But, but yeah, difficult conversations. Uh, sometimes you just need to have those difficult conversations because yeah. if you don't have those difficult conversations... It, 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 it stays around you, it's in the cells of your body, and you just can't move forward as successfully as you could do if you have those conversations and aired your grievances, your issues, your concerns. So one of, one of the things I'm fascinated by in the times we live in, Richard, and, and of course we're, we're all coming up to, both in the US and UK, elections next year, so leadership really, and I feel we the electorate or we the civilians we're always looking for someone who's going to come and save us we're looking for the next leader you know the next iconic leader whoever that might be who comes in and says you know this time this time it'll be better but my sense is that we're looking in the wrong place and that we're looking for the wrong thing and that perhaps we should be looking for the leader within all of us and I, I just wonder what your thoughts on leadership are and where we all stand in that Honestly, I, I have very little time for many of them. There's not many that I respect, and, and, and that's, you know, kind of a recent development for me as I've matured and, and seen what goes on in the world. And if you think about the politicians, like you see it on the media and they get asked the question and they, they dance around it and they do not answer the direct question. So I, I've lost respect for them. But I think you're, if you don't mind me saying, I think you're on the money there. Because <laughs> what's, what's sprung to mind for me is it's not about the leader that's going to do it. It's we have got to come together as a community and and sort some of these problems out or just, just that, that's what we need to do so it's, a, it's about community yeah. rather than that leader to sort it out for us i think the i i think it's going to have to get worse before it gets better i think we're gonna to have to realize that they're not going to sort this out or they're going to make decisions that are not in our favor and we're gonna to have to find another way yeah it's often uh, i mean i include with the nhs and such like because that's crumbling around us yeah I think there's got to be another way for that yeah so what 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 do you think, Richard? What would your message to listeners be in terms of what we can each do? You know, perhaps from your your own experience of overcoming adversity and and very harsh adversity, really. But you know, in these which I think we are all living through at very adverse times, what what would your message to listeners be as to what we can all do? Well, I think I think we've spoken about them all. I think I think what we can do about the current times is maybe slightly different to what you might do if you go through adversity, like losing your mum. However, I think what the overarching message for me is is about questioning. Is about questioning what is um, well. First of all, questioning what we're able to bounce back from. Because yes. you know, if you believe you can't bounce back from something, the chances are you probably won't do as well as if you believed I can get through this. I mean, you might need some professional help to get through whatever it is. So it's about questioning whether or not we can bounce back, questioning what's possible for us, and not doubting yourself, 
championing yourself, realizing that we've all got a voice here and we can play our part in in the local areas, in the, in the town, in the country, in the world. We can all contribute in our in, in our own way. Uh, but I think the overarching thing is about questioning, questioning what is going on around us. Because the more and more I see, uh, I, I I question people's motives. I, I question what we see on the TV. I question what I read in the papers, and I question people's integrity. If you think about West Yorkshire Police being seen to be doing the right thing, listen, I'm grateful that they apologised. However, it, it, it could have been done better with a bit more integrity, uh, with a bit more heart, a bit more compassion and empathy for those around the well, the families in, in my case. But I think for all of us, leaders having a bit more empathy for, for the people that they are supposed to serve. Well, that's a brilliant message, Richard. I, you know, it, it, it chimes with... Uh, the skills of mediation, which are all about questioning. Literally, we are we are always questioning reality and assumptions. What assumptions are you making? Uh, and don't. Uh, what my business partner David used to say: test all assumptions to extinction. I like that. Yes, love it, love it. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. I think that's a brilliant message to end on, unless you've got anything else you'd like to share with the listeners as one final tip. No, I, I just think, oh, listen, I know I know we're, we're in troubling times. And one thing I come to understand both through my resilience work and the interaction and the exercises that I carry out is that one way or another, we, we always find a way back from the darkness or the, the, or the, the page in the red in my bounce back a graph. There's always a way back. How we get back, will probably be influenced is those that we spend our time with those that we connect with those that we reach out to so it's like having good people around you speaking your truth acting with integrity and you won't go far wrong but there is always a way back absolutely fantastic richard and where can people find you please they can find me uh, well you can get all of me on my website just richardmccann.co.uk on linkedin i spend a lot of time on linkedin uh, on twitter i am uh, i can speaker and uh, and, and the, the we can community on facebook as well Brilliant. Richard McCann, thank you so much. Real pleasure, Jen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Mediator podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, and download a PDF copy of my book, how to beat bedlam in the boardroom and boredom in the bedroom, please go to janegunn.co.uk slash video. The link is in the show notes.